This episode is brought to you by Modi Body. I've now had the benefit of hindsight where I've been able to compare a spinal cord injury that has caused quadriplegia to depression and anxiety and panic attacks. And I think I can safely say that I have been far more productive with the spinal cord injury than I was with depression. It's never too late to take a different path or try something different. Like you said, it's okay to be wrong. I think being wrong is awesome. Being wrong is an opportunity to learn. I think we, we, we misstep and it's okay. But I think uh, someone also told me that life is not a dress rehearsal. It's happening right now. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy and fulfilment along the way. Hello, beautiful people. Back in your ears today with an OG interview. It's been so much fun adding years of our lives to the mix for something different, and I hope you enjoyed this week's ep a few days ago. Don't forget, that segment is wholly dedicated to this beautiful neighborhood and meant to be something we create together, implementing your feedback from the survey. So please keep those neighborhood watch submissions and feel-good recommendations coming so we can keep getting better and brighter each week. Back to our regular scheduling, today's guest was actually also a Yeberhood nomination from one of our most active contributors, affectionately known as Dainosaurus. Dana so generously sent a whole list of suggestions for guests a while back, and this is one that has finally come to fruition. Dana is the founder of Junior Doctors Corner and is a doctor herself, working to provide much-needed support to junior doctors entering the wild world of medicine and discuss important topics that are often discussed dismissed or taboo. Junior Doctors Corner also has its very own podcast, so make sure to check that out if there are any other young doctors listening in. Dana's nomination also hails from the medical world, but is not only a doctor. He is also one of those rare species who has completed degrees in both medicine and law, the holy grail combination that very few around the world dare to tackle. And if that alone weren't enough of a superhuman feat, Dinesh Palapana is also a quadriplegic and disability advocate, becoming only the second person with quadriplegia to graduate as a doctor in Australia, and the first with a spinal cord injury. Despite a life-changing car accident in 2010, Dinesh now works in the emergency department of Gold Coast University Hospital and has co-founded Doctors with Disabilities with two of his colleagues. He tells the story so beautifully himself, so I'll stop myself there, but I hope you find his zest for life and indelible positivity as uplifting as I did. P.S. The audio is a bit dicky at times. The joys of Zoom strike again. So excuse a few spots where it's a bit muffled, but otherwise I hope you enjoy. Dinesh, welcome to Seize the Yay. Hi, thanks for having me, Sarah. Thank you so much for jumping on the show. You are one of those very rare but incredible species of people who have done not only law but also medicine. The two degrees that I feel are mutually exclusive, but not in your case. Yeah, no, there, there are a couple of us roaming around. I feel like it's literally a couple in the whole nation. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Before we kick off, I start by asking everyone what the most down-to-earth thing is about them. And I feel like you will know the down-to-earth things about you, but I have already put you on a very, very high pedestal with this whole law med graduate oh. thing. <laughs> So what's something really relatable about you? Down to earth things. I love rap music, like old R&B and hip hop. Nice. Uh, um, when I'm on my way to work, I've got Biggie pumping out of my car. <laughs> um, I like pizza and um, I like shoes as well. So Shoes. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Oh, they're great. Yeah. <laughs> People always struggle. I'm like, no, they're really normal, amazing things. 
Yeah, we're all just normal people, I think. Totally. Well, that's the thing. We are all just normal people. But I think often people are introduced to you by your title first or by your story and your achievements and the highlights. And it's very easy in your amazing list of achievements and the things you've managed to do in the past couple of years to forget that you are just a human, like you sound like a superhuman. So (laughs) I'm glad you just like shoes and eat pizza. (laughs) So the first section is your weight TA, which is pretty much the journey from your very early childhood to where you are now. And that's for that exact reason that a lot of people will know you from your title or your achievements or the, the successes that you've had. And I think a lot of us appear like we woke up knowing what we wanted to do and having the direction that we have if you walked into this chapter of your life. But all of us started somewhere. Most of us have had periods of feeling lost and having, you know, sliding doors moments and forks in the road. And I love going through all of those to kind of trace through and and see how, what shaped you into the person you are now. And particularly with you, I know there was a big turning point in your life. So Let's start with young Dinesh. What were you like as a child? What did you think that you wanted to be? Byron and Brizzy, was it? Well, actually, I was born in Sri Lanka. Um, Ah. We moved to Australia on my 10th birthday. So I had 10 years growing up in Sri Lanka. I don't think I had any particular thing when I was growing up where I was like, you know, I want to be this. As I was talking to someone just yesterday, I said, why do you want to be a doctor? Or why didn't you want to be a doctor? And he said, I don't know. Since I was seven, I just wanted to be a doctor. So I was never like that. But I had all these different ideas. And I remember someone really close to me saying that, oh, that's really hard. And you may not be able to become that and only only the smartest people do this. And, but then I also had my mom who always made me feel like I could do anything. You know, whatever crazy idea I had, yeah, she's like, yeah, you could probably, you could, you could do that, you can do that. <laughs> so she's always made me feel very empowered and capable and enabled. I hope that all kids on this planet will have someone like my mom in their lives. But uh, Sri Lanka is a beautiful place today and it's very different but when I was growing up it was going through a civil war and it had a lot of conflict and a lot of suffering Mm. a lot of people died and a lot of people were displaced and it was a hard time for people I remember talking to some parents a couple of years ago and they said yeah those days we used to take different buses to work because if one of us dies at least there will be the other who makes it home for the kids (gasps) so you know it was that kind of life and Gosh. So it was a really difficult place. And um, I think the turning point for my parents was trying to get me into a school at one point and mm. the principals wanted some bribes. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and my mom sat outside this school for days and days and days and um, the guy just wouldn't see her or take me in unless if, you know, a fee was paid. So we moved here to Australia when I was 10. It's the first time I've been on a plane. Yeah, I think I threw off the hallway here. Oh, no. Um, But coming to Australia was such an incredible experience because you'd gone from a completely different environment to something that's just, you know, the change of seasons. Mm. There was suddenly a summer and a spring and a winter and whatever else because Sri Lanka is a tropical country and these big, huge supermarkets with toys <laughs> and, yeah, every, all these chocolates and aisles full of things and uh, lamingtons, which, which is something I remember really well. <laughs> Isn't it so funny the things that stand out, like that you've kept as such a strong memory even now, the uh, lamingtons? Well, I just remember the smell of it and the the texture of it it was such a unique thing but sydney we 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 landed in sydney and we spent only just six months but i just remember living in this block of apartments and it wasn't it was fairly old initially you know we didn't really have any furniture and we got it from Vinnie's. Mm. I, I just remember watching Disney cartoons at the neighbors upstairs. And it's, you know, it's really like the first time I'd seen all these cool cartoons. <laughs> that must have been such a weird time for you, like such culture shock. Yeah, it was. Um, but it was also like, it, it was also very interesting and very cool. It's just a kid discovering all these new things. So that was this, just this incredible experience. Then my dad got a job in Byron Bay. So we moved to Byron Bay. Most of primary school and high school from memory was in Byron Bay. 
Wow. Yeah, this was this was in the 90s. It was such a quiet little town. The original Sleepy Byron. <laughs> it was very Sleepy Byron. I have this really great memory. I think I might have been like 11 or 12. And we used to just ride our bicycles around the town, especially in summer, right? School holidays, you're just riding around, eating ice cream and messing around at the beach and whatever else. There's this one day where I went to my friend's house and we walked into his house and his mom was sitting on the couch and there was smoke everywhere <laughs> in the lounge. And Why is it so smoky in here? <laughs> she was holding this massive glass contraption <gasps> and just looking very chilled out. So I asked my friend, oh, what's your mom doing? And was, oh, yeah, she's smoking a bong. Like, oh. <laughs> what's a bong? <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, cool. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, those days, a lot of people partook in Byron Bay. Uh, and it was nice. It was, a, it was actually a really beautiful place to grow up. I loved it. But then I don't, I don't think I was particularly academic at that time. That's fascinating. Already everything up to this point is totally not what you would expect if all you were introduced as is a medical law graduate. <laughs> doctor <laughs> no right some days when i'm working in the kids ed these parents come in with their kids and they say tell tell little blah 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 how hard you had to work to become a doctor when you were <laughs> when you were in school and i'm like oh yeah, yeah i went to school every day but you know that's really reassuring because i think there is a bit of a preconception with certain professions and medicine of all the professions that you have to decide when you're very young and you know be that person that you mentioned who's seven and wants to be a doctor and then everything in their life is choosing subjects to be a doctor. And I, I love that you are an example that you don't have to do it that way. Of course, it's common to do it that way, but so much of this show is about the fact that pathways don't all look the same and they're mostly not conventional and your first degree wasn't even medicine anyway. So Exactly. And, and does the pathway have to be conventional? You know, like, does life have to be linear? Does, is, is that what life is? Like, we finish high school, we do a degree, we get married, we have kids, we work, we retire and we die. Like, really? Is that all life is? Surely not. Oh, my gosh. You are like the perfect guest for this show right now because that's the question that this show is about is I think for some people that is the extent of what they think life is. They do think of things in a very linear, conventional way, and I was that person you know, in my first career. And I shudder to think that I could have closed off so much of what life actually is about by sticking so rigidly to the plan all the time. Yeah. I'm such a proponent for the nonlinear pathway. And I love that yours has been that way. So how did you first decide on law at QUT? Like, why was that your first choice? Well, actually, I, I didn't have a particular passion or a purpose. And those two things, I think, are very, very important. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was just roaming around and having fun. And um, grade 11 and 12, like, um, I actually started grade 11 because we started fresh in, in Brisbane when I started, did the final two years in school. And initially, I was like, okay, I'm going to put my head down, I'm going to study hard and yeah, whatever. But then, you know, I met friends and we started partying and whatever else. My mom, she used to get the report cards and it'd be like 30 days absent sometimes. <gasps> and she'd be like, what were you doing? You like <laughs> When I went to work, you were dressed for school. Like, yeah. But then I went back to bed. Oh, my gosh. Again, like you are just smashing through people's perception of what it takes to be a good medical student later in life. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I'm, um, whenever parents ask me that question, though, I'm like, uh, yeah, it's, you know, work hard. Yeah, stay in school. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, why law? Why was that the first choice and not med? Um, I had this conversation with my mum. She taught me how to drive. She taught me all these things. She taught me about money. She taught me about everything, really. Uh, when I was talking about what I should do with my life, she thought, oh, you know, law is really cool. Like, why don't you, why don't you try that? So I applied to law and I got into law and thinking back, I don't know if my reasons for doing law, like they're probably very superficial. I thought, wow, you know, it'd be cool to be a lawyer. And <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> lawyers seem to do cool things and I, I'd love to wear a suit and work in the office. And yeah. I don't think that it was like, you know, I love the law and I love the way, you know. So I, I didn't really think of it that way. So 
I was going about my life and over a period of time, though, I, I started to become depressed. Mm. The thing is, now I know about this, but when I think back, uh, I, I didn't have any insight into what was happening to me. Yeah. But over a period of time, I started to really feel quite dull, wasn't listening to it rap. <laughs> first sign. That's the first sign. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I know. Jeez. Yeah. That's an amber light. That is an amber light, Janesh. It's an amber light right there. <laughs> I, should have, I should have seen the signs. So, um, you know, but, but like the music didn't sound as good. Yeah. And um, I stopped hanging out with my friends as much. And I love driving too. And I, you know, wasn't driving my car as much. And just everything seemed a bit dull, even the colors. And I started to get anxious all the time. Then I started to get panic attacks. It's just this debilitating terror when I was out somewhere. It, it got it got so bad to the point where I was afraid to go outside the house. Mm. Then I was just stuck inside the house for weeks and weeks and weeks. Sleeping patterns changed. I was eating differently. And so I think there are three things that I learned out of that. One is, I think when we go through mental health challenges, there's a medical component to it. So it, there's definitely a physiological aspect to it, but also... I think that it's a, like you said, it's an amber light in our life Yeah. that probably says, hey, are you actually living the way that you should be? Do you need to adjust the sales and do you need to think about life a bit differently? And I think that's really, really important. I think depression, like there are causes for that as well, like outside causes. Mm. And the other thing I realize is that I've now had the benefit of hindsight where I've been able to compare a spinal cord injury that has caused quadriplegia to depression and anxiety and panic attacks. And I think I can safely say that I have been far more productive with a spinal cord injury than I was with depression. Wow. But those days I was, you know, I was a prison of my mind and I don't think I did as much at all life like everything was falling apart i got like my education was suffering work was suffering relationships were suffering and it was all going downhill i mean very few people in the world can with personal insight make that comparison and give us an actual answer but how damning on the the impact of mental health i think because it is so invisible it it's so easy for us, I mean, not easy, but it's so straightforward to comprehend the debilitating impact of quadriplegia, paraplegia, any kind of long-term physical affliction. But it's so fascinating that mental health affected you more day to day, and yet you didn't even understand it enough to pick it up yourself until later. No. And I think um, I was talking to a friend maybe last year who also used to suffer from anxiety and panic attacks. And they told me that they, they recovered from it after a period of time. But they told me that one of their biggest fears these days is for that to come back. Wow. And it's not, not my biggest fear, but I always think, oh, man, imagine if um, I had to go through that again. That, that would not be fun. So, How did you get to the point where... It doesn't recur. Like what pulled you out of it? Was it the life change? Was it realizing perhaps the environmental triggers for that coming on? At what point did you realize that something was more than just the normal spectrum of emotion? It was a combination of things. So there was a medical side of it. And um, around that time, I was also diagnosed with celiac disease. Oh, um, man. I had a couple of medical things to sort out. But it was also readjusting the cell in a big way changing some of my interpersonal relationships and once I found medicine you know I was watching house and I decided I <laughs> stop it was that really what what sparked it no kidding because that would be amazing because literally one of the things I'm going to ask you in a couple of questions is about plural effusion and the only reason I know oh. what plural effusion is is because of house because of house I'm such an amazing diagnostician I'm literally like oh that's definitely sarcoidosis <laughs> Because uh, of those things. <laughs> it's the only diagnosis he ever makes. My medical vocabulary is amazing because of that show. <laughs> what actually was it for you? What was it? Like law and medicine are traditionally seen as like different forks in the road. Not, mm. It's not, you know, it's either or. It's not both and. Yeah. I mean, so I had that experience with depression. I really, really thought about life. I think I realized that I wanted to do something with people. I wanted to do something hands-on. I wanted to 
do something where I could just go anywhere in the world and um, I could just use my brains and my hands to make a difference in someone's life. And just one person was enough. Someone made a change in my life or some or people contributed to making a change in my life and it changed my whole world. Yeah. So so that that's I think that's a powerful thing. That that was one of the reasons why I thought, you know, medicine is a really cool way to do this. I also did this clerkship at a at a law firm and um <laughs> it was a small firm and <laughs> I was just like, what am I doing here? Because like make sure you build like this. Your six minutes, yeah. every six minutes. Yeah. Oh. I found it really hard to um see a future in that for myself. That's that's how I ended up with the idea of medicine. And um, once I found that, I, I was just so energized and I loved this idea. And uh, I felt like a new man. You know, when I, when I turned the corner from that point in my life, I actually remember the very day I drove out of my garage in my car and suddenly the sun was bright and the smells were sharp. <laughs> the birds were singing to you. <laughs> The birds were singing. <laughs> yeah, champagne was raining from the sky. <laughs> but, you know, that just highlights for me so much exactly what I truly believe about this whole concept of seizing your yay, that we do often take a few false starts down different pathways and yeah. you try things on for size and not one career is going to fit all of us and it, it's okay to start something and go, look, this really isn't me. This is some people... This is, you know, maybe some people who are similar to me in some ways, but it's just not right for me and it's costing me energy and time and like emotional, you know, it's costing me my life of trying to stick and make it work. And I love that you felt empowered enough to try something new because I think some people think when they've chosen something, it's a forever choice. They're too old or they've invested too much time and it's going to be a waste if they go back and start something anew. And then you're an adult as a student and, you know, people get very bogged down in not wanting to be a beginner again and being scared of the unknown. And I just, I love that you have found, you know, you found your yay and you weren't afraid to go after it. And then you reaped the benefits from that first moment of turning such a big corner. Love and life now. But, you know, you're right. It's never too late. I once met the Dilma guy. You know, do try Stop it. Stop it. I did. I chilled out with him in his... In Sri Lanka? Yeah. <gasps> um, so cool. I know. So a couple of things that really struck with me about him is that they do a whole heap of community work, like, Mm. It was incredible, but they're, they're, they're so, their level of social responsibility is amazing. The second thing is he'd start Dilma um, until he's in his 50s. <gasps> and how crazy is that? It's amazing. So I saw him and you see people like, I mean, even the American politicians now are like become presidents in their 60s and 70s. Totally. Yeah. Um, I met this like 80-something-year-old weightlifter, you know, couple of <laughs> So there's, it's never too late to take a different path or try something different. And absolutely, like you said, it's okay to be wrong. I think being wrong is awesome. Being wrong is an opportunity to learn. It's an opportunity to go, hey, there's something I could do differently. There's something I could do better. There's something I could do whatever. I think we, we, we misstep and it's okay. But I think uh, someone also told me that life is not a dress rehearsal. It's happening right now. I love that. I know. It's cool, right? One of the things that really kept me going after I got this spinal cord injury is that I can say that I lived life to the fullest until that point. Like I, I roamed around Byron Bay on my bike. I, I asked that girl out in summer. <laughs> and I, I took that trip with my friends and um, I partied in Japan. I, I, I really lived life. And I took a trip a few weeks before the accident happened. And it's one of the most significant things that I remember because it was one of my best friends. He called me up one day and he said, dude, do you want to go to Japan? And I was like, oh, <laughs> oh man, like, do I want to save the money or do I want to like spend the money? Do I want to, you know, like you kind of intellectualize those things. So we just turned up in Japan with no plans, just just a bag. <laughs> we really like had a great time. <laughs> I love how discerning you are with your words. You're like, we, uh, yeah, had a great time. <laughs> right. uh, we, we, 
yeah, we celebrated life. But that is so wonderful because, you know, I think there is like that adage of the the tomorrow that you envision and that you take for granted is not guaranteed. And that, that is exactly why it is so important to make decisions like the one that you made. You know, you can always make back money. You can never make back time and opportunities and have chances to relive particular days again. And I well, I bet now you're just so glad that you didn't go, no, that's not sensible. I, sh- I should save the money. Well, exactly, because we went snowboarding and I stood in the snow and I felt the snow on my face. But I didn't know that three weeks later, for another 11 years at least, I wouldn't be standing up in the snow again. Oh, my God. So how is that? That's, you know, but if I knew, if someone told me, hey, dude, you're going to have a spinal cord injury from a terrible car accident in three or four weeks' time, I'd be like, man, I'm going to Japan. I'm going to freaking Venezuela. I'm going everywhere. You know, that decision has become so much easier. And it's it's suddenly a no-brainer. And so it's like, well, why can't you preempt and live that way always so that you're not missing out on the chance to do it while you have it? Like even lockdown, I think, is something everyone just assumed they would be freely moving in the world and so delayed doing things that they wanted to do because they were like, oh, there'll, be, there'll always be time to do it. And then suddenly the world shut. Yep. You literally never know what's around the corner. You don't. In, especially in your case, you, you could never have known what was ha- going to happen. And I think there is a lot to be said for sparking your own moments of like turning points or sliding doors, doors moments in your life where you voluntarily choose to rip the Band-Aid and make a big, you know, change in your life, which you have already done. And in most people's episodes, this is the end of their story and we move on to the next section. In yours, it's barely the start. You just had already squeezed in a lifetime of revelations and learnings and pivots. But the next section is your NATA, which is the biggest challenges that you faced along the way. And I think it's the perfect time to sort of move on to the accident, what happened, what you remember, and how it's been recasting your identity and still going after the dream that you had before in a different way with different challenges, but going on to be incredibly successful nonetheless. Oh, yeah. I mean, speaking of sliding doors moments, I went to visit my parents. It was the 31st of January 2010. So a couple of weeks ago, it, it had been 11 years. Most wow. most years now, I don't really, I kind of forget. And then a few days later, I was like, oh, it's 31st of January. But this year, I've had a lot of reason to reflect. But that Sunday, um, that weekend, I went to visit this family member visiting and I actually wasn't going to go to my parents' place to see them because I thought I should study and whatever else. But then again, I thought, hey, you know what, I'll go and say hi. Went to see them. And then that Sunday, I was just like vegging the whole day because that's what I do when I go to mom's place and <laughs> eat food and like just hang out in my boxer shorts and watch TV. Just be a slob. I love it. We call them in the neighborhood sloth Sundays. Like the idea is the oh. the anti-productivity. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna use that. Yeah, I'll send you. There's these big oversized T-shirts that say hibernating. Oh. It's like you're rebuilding your yay in hibernation. Oh my god, that's so cool! <laughs> I love it so much. <laughs> well, I was hibernating, and uh, I was gonna go at lunch. Then I stayed back, and then I was gonna go at like 3 p.m. and then I stayed back, and then at 7:30 p.m. I decided to leave and. Last thing I did standing up until this point was give my mom a hug. Oh, my God. Give my mom a hug. I got in the car. So it was a rainy day that day. It was a little bit uh, wet on the road. And then I was going to visit a friend um, along the way, but I missed the turn off. And then I thought, oh, wait, I'll take the next turn off. Then I ended up in this stretch of highway and I thought, okay, well, I'm going to go and visit this girl. Of course it was a girl. Oh, my God. There was a girl. There's um, always a girl, damn it. <laughs> I thought, hmm, maybe I'll go say hi. So I was in this dark stretch of highway. There's been roadworks. There's very little lighting. I remember coming up to this little black slick, but it came up really quick. And as soon as I hit it, my car lost control. Spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning. Then it went up an embankment. And when it came back down the embankment, the nose of the car hit the road and it started flipping through the air. <gasps> I know. It was super violent, right? The glass was just exploding and there were things flying around the cabin. And I like to call this my ultimate mindfulness moment because 
there was a second there where I thought, okay, there's nothing I can do about this right now. So I'm going to reframe this into a positive experience. And so I thought, I'm going to think of this like a roller coaster and enjoy myself. Stop it. I swear to God. So that's what I did. And so when the latter part of the accident, I was actually just going, woo. I guess like, what can you do? I mean, you can't change what. But you know what's fascinating about you in the last sort of 40 minutes you, I've noticed you are, You have the most incredible recall, which I think means that in the moments that you're recalling, you were so incredibly present and observant of what was going on around you. Oh, kind of had to be present at that time, I suppose. Of course, yeah. So, yeah, um, and then the uh, car finally landed and then it was dead silent. And then I was like, whoa, that was, a, that was quite a ride. And I was wearing this white T-shirt and it was, it was now mostly red with blood i didn't really feel any pain but i realized that i was paralyzed because i couldn't open the door and my fingers weren't working anymore and then i couldn't feel my legs and i couldn't move and i knew you knew straight away i knew straight away what had happened i knew straight away that within seconds my life had changed Oh my Ever. gosh. Do you think because you had you had medical training at the time that you were more aware? Well, yeah, because um I, I met the fireman that came to the scene. Um I met them for the first time a couple of years ago. Wow. Yeah, that was really cool because they remember. <laughs> they say that one of the reasons they remembered it so well is because as soon as they turned up, I could tell them what my diagnosis was. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my gosh. You know, like the thing that panics me the most and why I am so fascinated by uh, emergency services workers is that I'm not great in time-sensitive panic situations. I'm, I'm okay in the moment, but in my brain I'm not okay. Do you remember from the minute it happened to the minute firemen and ambulance workers got to you, what happened? Like that yeah. waiting of knowing that something's wrong and knowing it's time sensitive but not them not being there yet like who did you call the ambulance yourself like how how do you no so what happened was there was someone behind me and they pulled over <sighs> and then they ran up and they were holding my head because my head was all apparently floppy he didn't have a phone so another car that happened to go by so then the fire truck was the first thing to come but they also hit whatever I hit and they lost control of the truck, apparently. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I know. Um, and they cut me out of the car. But I, I think um, I was just talking to the guy who was holding my head. <laughs> I was having a chat. But um, apparently I was, I was a bit you know, distressed by that point. Of course. And um, we're friends now. Um, he's, a, he's a good friend. That's we so lovely. He tried to find me for years apparently because they they wouldn't tell me what happened to me where i was taken and he said they even got an ad out in the newspaper or something like that he was trying to find you through the paper Mm -hmm. oh my gosh then um in 2014 i think it was or 2015 one of those it was new year's eve and it was like 10 p.m mom and i was like cleaning the apartment so medical school i wasn't partying for some reason and um we found this police report from the accident and it had this guy's phone number on it. So I said, um, the guy that was accident, same as Chris Bailey, who wouldn't care that I said it. Um, so we found Chris's number on the bit of paper. And then I send a text to this message going, Hey, do you remember pulling over for a guy who had this car accident in 2010? And I get this message back and it's like, Oh my God. Yes, I do. I've been, I've been trying to find you. Can I call you? So New Year's Eve, he called me up and we had this chat. He's like, oh, my God. Yeah, I tried to find you. I tried to find what happened to you. And we had a chat. And uh, it was it was so good to reconnect. It was like, whoa, this is amazing. Oh, my gosh. So since then, we've been friends. And then the first time we actually met physically was on Australian Story. So they... I watched that. So I, when yeah. you said Chris Bailey, I was like, of course, he was he was on it. And your beautiful mum was on it too. Yeah. So that scene on the show was actually when I first, that was real. It was when I first met him. Oh, that's beautiful. So it was really cool. So now we connect, we talk, we hang out when we can. And um, he's just a a good guy. 
Before we continue today, I've got a quick word on today's partner in Yay, Modibody, and the wonderful work they're doing for sustainability, self-acceptance, and seizing the Yay. Understandably, periods aren't our favorite thing to talk about or experience, but that has made it too easy for us to overlook that over a hundred billion menstrual disposables end up in landfill annually and can take 500 to 800 years to break down. Each of us will use on average 11,000 disposables in our lifetime, but Modibody provides a sustainable and surprisingly sleek solution with their period underwear range, allowing us to accept and love our bodies as they are, as well as loving the planet. And in February, they're shining a special light on body love and self-acceptance, helping us embrace the leaks, periods, tummy rolls and all. Hello, bloopers. <laughs> For me, a big part of that has been pushing through the stigma around certain topics of conversation that can often stop us accessing important information about our bodies. While the idea of period underwear definitely once made me cringe, wearing Modibody has helped me understand just how far technology has come to make the sustainable option sleek, discreet and comfortable. I understand my cycle better now and feel more in touch with my body as well as facing head on the impact of the products I was using on our beautiful planet. I highly recommend you check them out and give them a try with 15% off when you use the code SEAS15. Link in the show notes now. So, I mean, that was 2010, the accident. You were 25 years old. I think most people around that time in their life have a quarter-life crisis where suddenly you're closer to 30 than 20 and, like, it's a lot going on, you know. The 20s are very tumultuous. Finding yourself, it's it's angsty, you know. Uh, and let, al- <laughs> let alone literally losing the use of limbs that you've you actually consciously remember having and that you've built your whole adult identity having for you to have known yourself one way and then as an adult have to rebuild your hopes and dreams and and relationship with yourself many people I think would have not gone on and pushed through to continue their path as a doctor and have pushed through their many more barriers that you have faced since then with a disability, attempting to move into medicine, to have then become admitted to the Supreme Court last year as well, and to have the positive outlook that you have as well. Because in things like this, I have a theory that everything happens for a reason and it explains most things in the world. When I talk to someone like you, it doesn't work for me anymore suddenly because I I can't say that a tragic accident like that, I don't know what the reason is for that happening. But I'd love to know what you think about luck and you don't seem to have taken it on as like, oh, I had such bad luck, poor me, I don't want to do anything else in my life. You've gone on to help other people and to start Doctors with Disabilities and to fight for more access for people with disabilities in your industry and beyond. So I imagine that wasn't an easy journey nor a quick journey. How did you rebuild your identity? So speaking of identity, I'm a fairly vain guy. Let's just, I'm just going to go for <laughs> Well, I mean, for, for physical appearance, I spend a bit of time doing my hair and you know, the shoes. and Oh, the shoes. I did know. Yeah, the shoes. <laughs> so um, that identity, right, that was a very difficult thing to get back. I met a very, very young person who had a spinal cord injury and their family said that they didn't look in the mirror for a couple of months. Wow. I didn't actually look in the mirror for about probably two years. Wow. Yeah. Didn't know how. Like, it's just... Uh, That's fascinating. Now I look in the mirror all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that physical identity, like even um, clothing and dressing and whatever else, like it took a long time for me to find myself again. It has been extremely challenging. There were days when my mom and I... We didn't know where we were going to live. We didn't have any money. We were in a heap of debt. We were alone. Some days I was sick, like critically sick some days. So there were all these challenges that we had. But guess what? I feel like the luckiest guy on earth. Shut up. That's amazing. I feel like me and mom, like some days, actually every day, like life is so damn good. Yeah, like I live, I live on the Gold Coast. If I look over to my left, I can see the beach and the ocean. I see nature, I go to work and I'm like, man, I get to work as a doctor and I get to work in 
in emergency departments and see people and help people. And we live in this amazing country. I get to, I've got my mum, I've got being educated. How lucky am I? I feel like the luckiest guy on earth. And the journey hasn't been easy. I also sometimes think that you can't make a sword without putting it into the fire and beating it with a hammer. So I feel like that's what I've experienced and hopefully I'm a better human for it and hopefully that I'm, I'm stronger for it. And that's honestly how I feel today. I'm grateful. We, um, I'm grateful for so many things every day and I consciously am grateful for things. I think gratitude is really important. I was just going to say, I think gratitude is the antidote to everything, really. It's such a an easy practice to work into your day that people forget in really tough times. But it's impossible to be angry and grateful at the same time. Uh, and I remind myself of that all the time. Well, Sarah, you were telling me that um, about your trip to Rwanda in the schools. I went to Sri Lanka after the spinal cord injury and I saw how other people with spinal cord injury live there. And their lifespans are significantly shorter than mine. Their opportunities are nothing like the ones I have. Their support structures are nothing like what I have. So how can I not be grateful for my life? How can I not be thankful? Like it would be dishonoring them mm. at the very least. So I'm, I'm, I'm super lucky. I think it's such a valuable lesson and insight into how, I mean, the adversity that you have faced even before the accident, is still quite a lot of things to have had to build resilience for and have strength to get through and to stay directed and motivated, but then add the complete loss of your ability to walk. And when you had been really outdoorsy and you did have a whole identity based around that, it's just, I mean, it's extraordinary. But it's a, I think there's so many practical things that we can take away from that in any kind of adversity, the way to just get your head right around it, gratitude being a really big thing. But what else helped you and drove you to move back into medicine and graduate from med school. I think you were the first quadriplegic medical intern in Queensland and the second person with quadriplegia to graduate as a doctor in Australia ever, first with a spinal cord injury, but then found it tough to get a job and to fight for your place and have had people ask what the patient's reactions are. And I know there was a time where you graduated and then didn't were the only one in your cohort who didn't have a job for a little while. So what helped you get through those darker times where it wasn't you didn't have the perspective that you do now and the things to be grateful for were more obscured perhaps. Well, the um, I think the hardest time was actually the period after the spinal cord injury, like immediately after the spinal cord injury. That's when it was just like a fight to make it through the next day and the next day and the next day. There were setbacks, there were complications, there were all sorts of things. So that was probably the hardest time. But when I got to that point where I'd finished med school or when I was getting through med school, like we'd already been through like, so many challenges sometimes life-threatening sometimes otherwise so by that point I'm like man I'm just gonna keep fighting yeah (laughs) I can do anything now (laughs) well I was like oh you don't give me a job well we'll see about that (laughs) so um just having gone through the hard times before really helped also had some amazing people around me just incredible people and I think that's the other thing that you need to I, I have I have a friend and I love them dearly. And they're always busy, always a lawyer, right? He's also a lawyer. Oh, always surprise, like, surprise. Yeah, I know. But every time, like, doesn't pick up the phone. Um, and it's always like, I'm too busy for that. I'm too busy for that. And yeah, I barely see them. So I think that it's important to cherish the people around you. And to, if people fight for you, you need to fight for them as well. So there have been a lot of people around me that made a huge impact. And one person I remember, she came to the hospital when I had the accident and she hung up the poem Invictus by my bedside. Wow. Have you ever read the poem? Yeah. Meaning invincible, right? And um, it talks about the unconquerable soul. That's you. It's just small acts like that. I mean, I'm talking about it to you 11 years later. And it's still, yeah, so is imprinted. It's still imprinted in my mind. So things like that. Late last year, I was I had the huge honour of giving the National Museum an object of significance to me, which is displayed at the National Museum Canberra at the moment. Wow. And what I gave them was one of my scrub tops because scrub top signifies who I am. And then on that scrub top are signatures of a bunch of people that have played a part in this journey, the lecturers that taught me, the friends that were there for me. The, so all these people that have... um 
played a part in this journey. And it was such a cool thing to be able to honor them in that way because, you know, I am who I am because of them. And we also need to make sure that we're there for people as well. Totally. Yeah. I think um, you're the sum of the five people you spend the most time with and you have to choose them wisely. But also it takes a village. Everything does. There's no one... I've had on this show or who I've ever spoken to really, even though their achievements might outwardly seem individual, no one's really ever gotten there without a huge army of people who have helped get them there, even in small contributions along the way. But everyone remembers the 10 or 12 people who have done particular things or had particular conversations with you that are pivotal and that then you've had the chance to pass that on to other people as well. You've probably been one of the five or 12 in someone else's life. And I think... We're so interconnected and people forget that. You sometimes take it on yourself that you have to get there alone and, and no one does. No one does. <laughs> I know. And that's so important. Like that's um, that's really important. And I think giving, you know, like we're, we're so mm. – that's one of the other tricks to life, I reckon, because we're so inward looking sometimes. Like I'm feeling this way. I need to do this for myself. Me, 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 me. But actually – I think life is about looking outwards and seeing what we can give. Giving is such a joyous thing. It's fulfilling and it's an awesome thing. So I think um, being giving is is also really important. So giving to the other people around you. Mm. Are you going to really be happy with all the money that you accumulate at the end of the day? When you have that last second on this planet, one day you're going to look back and think, okay, I've got $7 million and that's a great thing. I you to think, wow, you know, I've connected with so many people and that may last a long time. I think mm. hopefully the answer is we, we just will be happy about the things that we gave. My mum always said, mum and I always have a laugh to each other, like you can't take it with you. So like you might as well enjoy it widely and with the people you love now. Like no one, it doesn't matter how selfish people are, like at the end of the day on their deathbed, it doesn't, it but they can't do anything with that money. It doesn't come with you anywhere. So I think that's something that probably we all need to reflect on a little bit more. Is like at the end of the day, you're never going to regret. I don't think anyone will get there and go, I wish I gave less. Yeah, I, I wish I did less nice yeah. things. <laughs> yeah. Why was I nice to that person? And it's funny also that you said happiness. Uh, we talked a little bit at the start about you know, the difference between happiness and success and how they're very conflated. And of course they're related, but I don't think they're necessarily the same thing. And I think Hollywood's the perfect example that money and things and fame and celebrity and outward success doesn't equal happiness in and of itself. So what's your relationship to success? You have a lot of metrics. You have an Order of Australia, Queensland Australian of the Year this year. Congratulations. Thank you. But for you, what are your metrics of um, measuring success? Yeah. I mean, those things, I think I'm so grateful to our community, firstly for, you know, to my friends, family and loved ones for being there for me to take this journey and getting me here. Most of all, my mothership. Um, she's such a legend. She's like yeah. in the background. Hi, mom. Yeah, I know. She's in the background. I, I don't think she realized. <laughs> Hey, mama. <laughs> and she's running off. So I'm really thankful. And, you know, those milestones are hopefully reflect the importance of giving someone a chance in our society and not saying that, okay, this person has a spinal cord injury or this person's this or that. Anyone can make anything in our country. Absolutely. But for me, it also it holds me at a higher standard to myself. And I think, you know, this just means that I need to keep doing what I'm doing and to keep doing more. But success is really like what I can give back to society. That That's success and that's happiness to me. Mm. You know, like um, students sometimes reach out, for, if, just as an example. I think it's important to give time to people like that. And okay, let's catch up for a coffee and let's talk about mm. your career and what you want to do with it. And um, I'll help you in whatever way I can. So it's stuff like that. And it's that interconnectedness and community. It's what gets us through these times like pandemics and things, right? Totally. Yeah. What are you going to do with your 10 million bucks that sitting at home? <laughs> well, you with your 10 million bucks or 2 million, I think it was the grant that you got. Uh, tell us about some of the incredible things you're doing. I, I heard you're doing thought controlled rehab and yeah. Um, yeah. paving the way for other people who might experience spinal cord injuries, but also the amazing advocacy that you've been doing for other people with disabilities because I think there's a lot of not 
misunderstanding, but I think still quite a lot of discrimination against people for their physical abilities. Yeah. And it's not just, you know, we see it from education, employment, healthcare, community access. It's, It's really widespread, some of the disparities. People living rurally, you know, for them, it's also even more amplified. During COVID-19, we saw some countries that were talking about taking a different approach with life-saving treatments if you're a person with disability. You know, we see all that stuff. It's, it's been really a confronting thing. But of, um, of late in particular, I've had the opportunity to be um, a witness for the Disability Royal Commission. Wow. I've been in some roundtables with the federal government around COVID-19 and um, really speak out about some of these issues that are affecting people with disability. And hopefully that's going to make a positive impact because there, there is stuff that we need to do, not just here, but around the world. With the spinal cord injury research, that's really exciting. So today, I was um, this afternoon, I was at our research lab. And we are really, I think, starting to uncover just the surface of how the brain and spinal cord works. Mm. I think it's the same with spinal cord. So Around the world, we've seen some really amazing work done around um, thought-controlled rehabilitation and um, drug therapy and electrical stimulation that have actually restored function, <gasps> some function at least, in people that have been paralyzed for years and years and years. Wow. So this is the kind of stuff that we're, we got a ground floor to build on. And again, this has been a journey that, um, speaking of sliding doors, right? So. <laughs> A few years ago, I was in my elevator on my floor and this Italian dude gets into the elevator, lived a couple of doors down from me in my apartment building. And we start talking and this dude gets in and he talks in his Italian accent and we start chatting and it turns out he's a scientist at Griffith. So me and he talk and um, over time we start talking about spinal cord injury and I'm like, man, you know, there's all this cool stuff happening in the US and Switzerland. And he's like, oh, you know, I wonder if we can start doing some of these things here. So then there was equipment that we needed, the headset that actually does the thought control, reads your brain waves. So I was at a colleague's office and I started talking to him about this stuff. I said, oh, yeah, we just need to find a few bits of equipment, including one of these headsets. And he's like, oh, dude, I've got one right here. And he opens his drawer. Yeah. And he pulls out, he's like, I haven't got one, but I have two. So we found all this equipment and we started fiddling around and, and realized, oh my God, we can actually build on what uh, what they're doing there. So we started working on it. We had proof of concept. Then we applied for a grant. We got the grant. Now we, we've got the $2 million in funding. We're in the lab and uh, doing the thing. And That's amazing. One day I can do this podcast again with you, but I'll be standing up. Stop it. I just got goosebumps. Oh, my gosh. That would be incredible. (gasps) That's the dream. Well, I'll hold you to that. Uh, I fully expect you to hold me to it. (laughs) Well, there's one more section and just a few questions. It's my favorite section. Okay. And I'm sorry, everyone listening. I know I always run this so that there's not much time left for it because I just get so distracted by the story because it's so fascinating. I have one more question, though, before we move on, which is just about how you found, particularly as an adult, I think as a child you might not see the nuances or the subtleties of people's behaviour changing, but when you did start to rebuild friendships and relationships, I imagine a lot of people wouldn't have known how to act around you and how to be and how to support you best how to not be weird, and then sometimes by trying not to be weird, they'd be even weirder, only out of care and compassion. But I think, (laughs) you know, like a lot of the – I said before that there's a lot of discrimination. I didn't actually mean that. I think there's just a lot of inaccess because of misunderstanding or because of not thinking as empathetically because we don't have that same experience. And I think it's the same in being around people and trying to support them through the experience because you just don't know what they're going through and you can't empathize really. How was that for you? And is there anything that you wish that you could tell people not to do or not to say (laughs) that you don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, but is there anything that triggers uh, you or that like people do all the time that you just you just wish that you could just say, don't do that, man? Like that is a nate um, I'll tell you a quick couple of things. One's funny. When I was in the hospital straight after this happened, one of my 
you know, good friends. So she came to the hospital and she's like, oh, you know, I've stuffed my knee. It sucks. <laughs> and, you know, I won't be able to walk for like two weeks. And I'm like, oh, it was so funny. But she, she's like got the purest heart. And I was like, I think she just wanted, she was just talking to me. Probably didn't even think of it. So that was really funny. <laughs> I can imagine you um, just being like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I was like, oh. <laughs> cool, man. I also reflect on the fact that I have some dear close friends now who have only known me after the accident. <gasps> yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's like a weird thing. And that, that's also cool. That is cool. <laughs> so the very last section is your play TA. And I don't know, as an admitted lawyer slash doctor, I don't know how you would have time to do anything else. But I think the, one of the most important things when you do love your job yeah. is that you do something outside your job that's completely unrelated to productivity, to achieving. I mean, particularly being a doctor, achieving and productivity and using your brain is like and learning and con continually self-bettering is like hardwired into your brain. But play TA is what do you do to forget what time it is? What do you allow yourself to do that is yeah. purely for joy? Yeah. Mine is gardening, even though I'm terrible at it, and like crime books or war movies, like nothing to do with what I do, but it's the stuff that makes my brain switch off. So what are yeah. those for you? Well, I'm going to tell you something that might um, maybe it's an unexpected answer, but I think it's important to find joy in what you do every day as well. So I find joy in medicine and going to work and whatever else. So that's super important for me anyway. I like to have fun no matter what I'm doing. But if we're talking about you know, things outside, I suppose, professional activities, um, or music, like... Uh, <laughs> that rap. Yeah, I love the rap. I love the rap. <laughs> I don't mind, you know, movies. I like, I like um, just like being outside, like in the sun. I'm, I, I'm like, I think I'm addicted to it now because I spent so much time in a dark place, not knowing whether it's day or night yeah. when I had an injury and not knowing when I'll be able to be outside. My room is just like, I never close the blinds, it's just glass, floor to ceiling, and I can see outside. Mm. So I just love chilling outside, like just either having a coffee or reading somewhere. And I like doing fun things. Like I went, um, I went paramotoring once you know i've been in a rally car i've been what else i've been um on a pallet i've been on a glider like a you know it was not a, like a hang glider but a glider that's in clothes i, I like doing stuff like that amazing um, so that's pretty fun just anything fun really it's like doing fun things um, you know what's weird how many people you would ask including my former self what do you do for fun and they kind of look at you like what like what what do you mean for fun? Like what? what's fun? And that's why it's called play TA because it's like a call out to that juvenile inner child that people let die. And it's like, no, you're not. I mean, you have to grow up in some areas, but keep the inner child alive. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Second last question. What are three interesting things about you that don't normally come up in conversation? Um, so I, um, I love cars, love cars and most things with engines. Like I'm just... Um, I, I really love cars um, and I always have. So cars are my thing. Uh, I don't, I think my middle name is actually a last name. So yeah, a lot of people ask me what my middle name is, but it's, I think I, it's more like having two last names, I think. Oh. And my last name is actually Palapana. So from my understanding, and this might be wrong, <laughs> in Sri Lankan history, I think the, the king sort of, allowed some families to govern over certain parts of the country and they literally had these houses that they governed it out of mm. and Palapana was one of these houses and there's a village called Palapana now which is where I'm from it's where my family had that house so Palapana is um yeah it's got a little bit of history to it and it's, amazing um the third one okay I really also like chocolate Mm. Like favorite is. chocolate bar what would you take on a desert island it's it's a significant weakness for me so it's not really a chocolate bar but i, um, I like nutella like Ooh. just by the spoon yeah yeah me too and then um there's a really awesome chocolate bar um i think it's called Whit whitaker's or whitman's but it's the coconut oh one. the slab the mini gold oh yes so good i know it's dangerous amazing very last question since i love quotes so much what's your favorite quote 
yeah, I have many that I love. But I think the biggest one um, that probably encompasses a lot of things that we've talked about tonight, it also encompasses the reason why I do medicine, is that it's something, it's a quote that my mom loves, and I can't remember where it comes from. And it is that by helping one person, you may not change the world, but you'll change the world for them. That's beautiful. I think that's really important. So important. Oh, my gosh. You are absolutely extraordinary. Thank you so much for your time and wisdom. And I just can't wait to see what you do next with this new technology and research. And I hope we keep in touch. Yeah, we will for sure. What an incredible display of gratitude and strength in the face of a big, fat NATA. I just found this story so heartwarming and Dinesh was just such a delightful person to chat to. If you enjoyed the episode, please do take a moment to share it so we can keep spreading the yay and subscribe or drop us a review if you haven't already. It helps us keep growing and securing you wonderful guests. I hope you're having an amazing week and are seizing your yay. 